Hello, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to this global dialogue on unlocking feminist activism. I'm Sara Pantoliano, I'm the chief executive at ODI, and I'm really, truly delighted to host this event today in partnership with Irish Shade, an event that will focus on um, trying and understand better how social movements are building gender justice. Before I introduce the event, just some you know, sort of small housekeeping. Well, first of all, I mean, we'd like to encourage all of you to exchange you know, between our wonderful audience and our incredible speakers. So please start thinking now what you may want to ask our, our guests and use the Q&A function in the slider box that you'll see below the live stream to send in your questions. I'll pick them up later in the session. Um, if you're on Twitter, please amplify the conversation. We really want to make sure that we make a bit of noise about this. And so we will be tweeting from the ODI account. If you want to make sure we amplify your messages, um, use the handle um, at ODI underscore global so that we can you know, sort of um, make sure that your messages are also heard more and use the hashtag feminism unlocked. Um, and finally, before we begin today's sessions, I re I'm really, really happy to share that we have more than 1400 people signed up from all corners of the world. I believe it's an ODI record and it really speaks to the power of feminism globally. Um, but let me let me get into the, the substance of the matter. I think this dialogue couldn't come at a more crucial time for women's rights. Um, you know, we see femicide cases increasingly hitting the global news bulletin at the same time as women are gaining hard-won rights of reproductive autonomy all over the world. And we know that as the two things are in tension, basically we are confronting a real and growing patriarchal backlash that really threatens to stall this transformation worldwide. I'd like to stress that gender equality is neither inevitable nor irreversible. And I think all of us who are invested in progress must stay sharp. We must learn from one another and we must support one another and continue to fight. So today we want to really highlight the pivotal role the feminist social movements are playing in achieving gender justice, in driving deeper social change. We want to explore examples of success. We want to hear the lessons that we have learned in the fight. But we also want to think through more um, some of the barriers the social movements continue to face so that we can better advance gender justice and we can really think of what support we can offer globally movements to achieve these goals. We have a really wonderful opening panel with a fantastic group of colleagues who I'm really, really, really grateful for being with us today to share the, the insights from the work that they are doing on the ground. Um, they are really leading the fight for gender justice around the world, and you'll have an opportunity to engage with them in the Q&A. But first, um, to begin our global dialogue, I'd like to invite our co-host, Irish Shade, to open the event. Um, our colleagues are all too aware of the benefits of feminist social movements, um, what they bring to the table. And I think their ambition and leadership when it comes to achieving gender equality deserves strong praise. Um, so we'll hear a welcome address from Ireland's Minister of State for Overseas Development, Aid and Diaspora, Colm Brophy. I would like to sincerely thank ODI for convening this dialogue and Ms. Shebby and all the expert speakers for taking the time to be with us today to share their insights on gender justice. To help situate today's discussion, I want to set out two principles. Gender equality is a fundamental human right. 
gender equality is a fundamental condition for sustainable global development. And that is why gender equality, and in particular the empowerment of women and girls, is at the heart of Ireland's international development programme. In stating these principles, and I do so with humility, we must say that the modern Irish state, which has been independent for 100 years, for much of my lifetime, there has been a long process of societal, then legal, and then constitutional change, gradually bringing Ireland from a conservative and at times repressive place into what I hope today is a more equal place for all. That change has required difficult societal conversations on questions which for many are really personal, on issues which touch on people's sense of personal morality, conversations which require us as citizens and particularly as politicians to listen. We are better for those conversations. Ireland is a more equal place. We are not perfect, but I hope that we have found a way to move forward, to work through challenges and to put in place policies made over the past 50 years or so. Those conversations, our journey, have found their way into the values which underpin Ireland's foreign policy, including our approach to international development cooperation. We've benefited on our island from the part which women played in our peace process, from the women's coalition who were critical to the achievement of the Good Friday Agreement, to the day-to-day -day work of women leaders in our communities. The process of government has been enriched through the greater participation of women in politics, although we still don't have nearly enough. To help address this, we have put in place systems to incentivize the selection of female candidates by all political parties. The conversations we have been having, the change process in which we have engaged, echo other conversations and other change processes. A key learning for us has been the importance of strengthening women's representation. We have taken this into our international development work and Ireland's wider foreign policy, striving to amplify women's voices and to help ensure inclusion and participation. I'm particularly conscious of the power and promise of feminist leadership in driving change. Their courage, bravery in standing ahead of the crowd helps create the conditions for others to move. Women advocates must be at the centre of our diplomacy, of our partnerships. We need to use our investment in international development to help prepare young women and girls so that they are empowered for the future. That's why, at last year's Generation Equality Forum, I committed an Irish investment of at least 42 million euros over five years in feminist and women's rights organization and in women peace builders. Ireland's membership of the UN Security Council has been an opportunity for us to highlight and focus on women, on gender equality, and how they contribute to achieving peace and security. During our Security Council presidency, 16 of the 17 briefers we brought before the Council were women. We have applied a gender lens to our contributions, to resolutions, and to other council work. But if change is to endure, it will be through social evolution. And that's why today's discussion on the role of social movements and the barriers that need to be addressed to advance gender justice is particularly valuable.
I look forward to hearing how we can translate the experience of individual women and girls into opportunities for meaningful collective action for gender equality. Today, we can reflect on the lessons, positive and not so positive, learned over 27 years since Beijing. In that time, feminist movements have learned, they've evolved and scaled up. And it's also true that in that time, we have seen pushback on fundamental concepts. Some reject the very concept of gender equality. So how do we ensure that we protect the gains we have made? How do we best stake out the way forward so as we can achieve the progress we need? Are there opportunities for feminist social movements in addressing issues such as climate change? I'm also mindful of the corrosive effect of the pandemic, which has had a disproportionate impact on women and girls, very often in the poorest countries. Too many girls have had their education interrupted. Too many girls will not go back to school. Too many girls have been pulled into a cycle of early marriage, early motherhood and poverty. Through Ireland's International Development Programme and using our voice, we are helping address this. But much more needs to be done. The pandemic has also seen a rise in gender-based violence. No country has been immune. Ireland too has seen an increase in violence against women. Much of this is intimate, hidden behind the doors of family homes and too often cloaked by the fear-induced silence. The recent murder of a young woman, Ashleen Murphy, has provoked what I hope will be an enduring national conversation on gender-based violence, which in turn, I hope, will change behaviours. There is a role for government in guiding and acting on this conversation, but also for activists and for social movements. Today is for conversation, good conversation, good listening, but it's also a day for commitment, commitment to further action, commitment to solidarity, commitment to each other, and commitment to leadership. With that commitment, together, we can journey to a global gender equality. I would like you all to have a very good conference. Thank you. Thank you so much, Minister Brophy, for those really important remarks and, and for reminding us um, of the power and the promise of feminist social movements. Um, and actually reminding us of the many achievements um, they have obtained in Ireland and, and beyond. And it's really great to hear um, about Ireland's investment um, in social movements of you know, the pledge that you have recently made. We'll discuss this more um, later in the event, you know, the importance of really resourcing these movements. But I now want to um, introduce, I'm really excited to introduce our keynote speaker, Aya Chebi. I don't think she needs much introduction, but let me remind you that Aya is you know, a Pan-African youth leader. Um, she's a Tunisian diplomat, she's an activist, she's an all-around feminist trailblazer. Um, she's the chair and founder of the Nala Feminist Collective. That's a, a group of 17 African feminists with a mission to foster, to enable, to mobilize young women to act on gender inequality. If you're not familiar with it, do take a look online at their Africa Young Women Beijing Plus 25 manifesto for just a taste of what they are about. 
Aya, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Um, over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Sarah, for that generous introduction. And thank you to uh, ODI for having me. Thanks to your partner, Irish Aids. It's great to see the Irish minister uh, engaged. It's an honor also to join uh, feminists from around the world to continue to shake things up for the gender agenda. Uh, I think we're at a key moment to reflect on the past decade because women have been uh, fighting for social justice and for equality for more than a century. But I think this decade has seen the emergence of a generation of women using new ways of activism. And I come from that generation, which uh, changed the course of history of my country, Tunisia, but of the world eventually. And uh, when we did a revolution, when we asked the dictator, we changed the constitution, we voted women to parliament. After 10 years, we today have the first uh, female head of state. But when they ask us, how do you do that? How can you be on the front line? How do you fight patriarchy every day? How do you win these battles? All I know is that I am the daughter of women warriors and thinkers and queens and governors, and that without women organizing, there would have been no independence from colonization, no resistance movement, and no change throughout history. So I cannot but be fearless and organize with bold feminist uh, movements. And we continue to use activism to challenge repression and to occupy especially public spaces it is a symbol of gender segregation and is very much still colonized by the state or a combination of state private uh, enterprise control. And I don't know if you can grasp how challenging it is to step into public space to organize as women because it really means you step into religious and historically male-only spaces. And that really defines how you organize and what can you and cannot do or say. And yet feminist movements have been in the public space, have protested, sexual assault and femicide have disrupted, have ended oppressive laws, have rallied women to leadership. And today we have more countries uh, with their first female presidents. And movements range from the Chilean gender violence protests to NSARS of Nigeria, to shut it all down of Namibia, to criminalizing sexual harassment in Egypt, to the revolution in Sudan, to the Women's March, to Saudi women ending guardianship laws, to survivors banning child marriage in more countries, and the list really goes on. But also when public space is not an option, we go online. And as we speak today, Afghan women are campaigning to stop gender apartheid in Afghanistan. And I think my generation has revolutionized the way we use technology the way we organize and access information and campaign. So we turn social media into a tool for social change because really everything digital empowered us when we did not have a voice offline. So it has become very vital to us to own our narrative and to build our movement uh, to be digital. Women, I think activism has and is shaping the world. So there is no doubt about that. And this is just few examples of it. But I think it's very fragile progress, despite all the tireless work of feminist uh, activists and organization and movements. The pandemic, I think, showed us that we are at a tipping point in the feminist movement. We still live in a world where it's okay to cut the clitoris. It's okay to marry at nine years old. It's okay to be killed for going to school. It's okay to be punished for having a period or wearing a veil. It's always about being a girl, not being a human. 
within borders, across borders, within refugee camps, outside of refugee camps, I think it is a violent world we continue to live in. And that is a violence that patriarchy uses as a weapon to keep women trapped in inequality. And I think what we see today more and more is that it has become a hustle for a young feminist movement to survive, especially during this pandemic. Hustle for protection, hustle for funding a civil society, hustle to access governments, hustle to participate, to have a legitimate seat at the table. And even this hustle is romanticized. And a lot of feminist organizers continue to face systematic and political barriers from both state and non-state actors. We see crackdown on activists, censorship, murder of women rights defenders, hijack of leadership during democratic transitions. Uh, you know, we, we, we fight alongside men revolution, but when it's over and when we cut the cake, we're excluded from leadership. And the list goes on. So I think now it's important to answer this question that you're raising in today's conference, which is how do we unlock feminist activism to address all of these challenges? Because we know that uh, sustainable, transformative change has to be bottom up. So how international community can deliver, especially on their promises of generation equality. I was hearing the Irish minister who have made a great commitment to support feminist uh, movement and leadership. We had an action coalition on it. A lot of you who are listening to us have committed to fund and support diverse feminist activists and movements. And I think the lessons we learned from the past decade is that our feminist movements more than ever need to be intergenerational, intersectional, and pan-African. So I would say first, support movements to be intergenerational. We have to recognize that we have a generation gap. So much uh, indigenous movements have succeeded to transfer knowledge and collaborate across generations, but many also in urban movements still cannot communicate with other generation and have fundamental differences. And if I speak of Africa, we have the average age of African leadership at 64, while the average age of the population at 20. So we have a huge generation gap and it's a gap of communication and it's a gap of collaboration. And I think this is also exacerbated by funding models that support traditional feminist partners who existed for decades at the expense of emerging disruptive feminist groups. So it shouldn't be a dichotomy. I think we need to move into an intergenerational co-leadership model and intergenerational funding. We need to trust young people to lead and make every space intergenerational because it works and we know it works and we worked with our elders and with our allies who come from other generations. To support movements to be intersectional. As young feminist collectives, sometimes we feel used, ticking boxes, a women empowerment box here, a youth participation box there, tokenized, UNized. It is always this attempt to box social movement to this or that issue. But we are global. We are the millennials. We are connected. We have shown that when we have a collective identity around a global political agenda, we can mobilize collective action because we believe our struggles are intersectional. This is what my generation is practicing in our movements because the fight for gender equality can't be achieved without the fight for food security or the fight for or against violent extremism cannot be achieved without the fight for climate justice. So we are doing that already, but we need 
the support of international community to understand the intersectionality of our struggles and our action. And we need to ask who sets the agenda and are we actually listening to the demands and priority of feminist movements? We need more of you, organizations and leaders, to recognize the power of cross-movement organizing and this connection that we see between social justice organization leading um, to a stronger movement. And three is to support movements to be Pan-African. What is needed today, I think, is more than just women empowerment. It's about women's liberation. And historically, Pan-Africanism has been about liberation, to be, to become, to belong as an equal human being. Pan-Africanism means my liberation is your liberation. So why we should, or the world should adopt a Pan-African approach is because there is no Pan-Africanism without feminism, because the objectification of women is anti-Pan-African, and it derives its roots from patriarchy, from colonialism, from racism. And when you support this African Ubuntu concept, the narrative shouldn't be about helping those poor women who don't have rights. It's about transnational solidarity and really meaningful partnership with feminist groups to drive positive change. The fourth and, and last, I think for me, is fund movement to be resilient. Feminist organizers deserve respect. Organizers should be treated like other professionals and be paid for their work. And I don't think it's any more about issue-based funding as much as it's about building power. There is a difference between winning and building. And funders today seem to be more interested in policy shifts and legislative wins, which are extremely important. But movements should also be about building communities, protecting marginalized communities, building power internally to remain resilient. So as stakeholders, I think we need to ask, are you supporting social movement as a means to an end or supporting them as an end in itself? And to what extent are you willing to fund those of us who are organizing in unconventional ways and challenging the status quo and power dynamics? I know my time is up. I want to end with the words of Egyptian feminist who left us uh, recently, Nawal Sadawi, who said, women are half of society. You cannot have a revolution without women. You cannot have democracy without women. You cannot have equality without women. You can't have anything without women. And my call to action for you today, you know exactly what should be done. So act with the urgency needed for gender justice to this half of society. Thank you very much and enjoy the rest of the conference. For the truly riveting call to action, it's really inspiring to listen to you. And, and I think what really struck me in particular is, you know, how you stress the way in which feminist social movements are used boxed, tokenized, because I've seen that in my life experience, and really, you know, this reminder of the power of um, cross-movement organizing. But, you know, power, that, as you said very well, needs to be built and needs to be resourced. And I'm really hoping that, you know, at the end of this uh, conversation, we can make some tangible progress towards seeing, you know, more investment um, in, in, uh, in resourcing social movements. I mean, it, it's clear to me that we still face enormous barriers as a global community to to really empower, enable, support, resource um, feminist movement. But it also clear to me that social movements are the key instigators of meaningful change. And we've actually just released 
uh, a report to the IETRABA Align um, platform on mobilizing for change. And the report really charts you know, the two main pathways that women's movements take to initiate transformation. Um, and we see that you know, one is through demanding new laws and policies, but the other is really through renegotiating and challenging you know, patriarchal gender norms with their activism. And that is exactly what needs supporting more. So, you know, this global dialogue today is rooted in evidence that really makes the case uh, for feminist mobilization. Um, but let's come to our panel discussion. I really want to hear from, you know, the fantastic feminist activists that we have um, uh, in, in this conversation on how social movements are building gender justice. So it's my real Great pleasure to welcome our high-level speakers. Um, first of all, we have Hakima Bas. Hakima is an African feminist who is currently the co-executive director of the Association of Women's Rights in Development. Um, Awid is a leading for a global feminist membership organization that works to strengthen feminist movements. I'm really, really grateful to Hakima, who is with us despite, you know, sort of just recovering from COVID. Um, thank you so much, Hakima. Um, we have Dr. Alba Smith, who is a feminist and LGBTQI plus rights activist from Ireland. Um, Alba has been central to the recent successes of the equal marriage and reproductive rights movements in Ireland. Um, she also wears a hat as a, a chair of Women's Aid and brings really experience from decades of activist work um, in Ireland and beyond. And, and last but not least, we have Zora Musa, who is uh, the executive director of Mama Cash. Mama Cash is the first international women's fund in the world. Um, their mission is entirely centered around directing resources to um, frontline women's grassroots work. Let me first turn to Hakima. Um, Hakima, we just heard from Aya that you know, women's grassroots activism works. You know, we've heard that feminist movements are really central to challenging structures of patriarchal power. Um, so I'd really like to hear from you what, what you have learned from your experience at Tawed about, you know, the transformative potential of feminist movements. And, and, what, and what do you think is currently impacting on their work? Thank you, Sarah. And can I say, I loathe to follow in the footsteps of Aya. I want to almost say, listen to her and, and we leave it there. But let me try to follow in those footsteps. I'm going to start with a bold claim, that there is no change towards gender equality without feminist movements. But I'm going to back it up. And I'm going to start in a place that I don't usually start, with the research, the evidence in, in a more academic sense. And then I'd like to go to some stories, if you'll permit me. But evidence clearly shows that autonomous feminist movements are the key drivers of change on gender equality. There have been several studies that show this, but one particularly stands out. And that's a longitudinal study that was done over four decades by Tan and Weldon that presented a global comparative analysis in 70 countries of policies on violence against women. They showed that the autonomous mobilization of feminists is the critical factor accounting for policy change on violence against women, both domestically and transnationally. So not political parties, not women in government, or even factors like national wealth. They also found, almost conversely, that fem when feminist movements are excluded from policy processes advancing women's rights, the transformative potential of those policies are muted. 
So clear evidence that feminist movements are key drivers of change around gender justice. But I want to make maybe, and take that further, and make another bold claim, that feminist movements are key drivers of social change full stop on gender justice and on economic justice, on peace, on democratic process, on climate justice. And for that, I'd like to tell you a story from a feminist organization in the Horn of Africa. If you think back in the 1990s, the Horn of Africa was a region in, in great turbulence. It was a time when the war in Somalia began, when Sudan had a military coup, where Eritrea's independence had just been won. It was also a time of vibrant social movements. The people of the region were mobilizing as students, as women, as workers, in formal politics, in organizations, and in collectives. And out of that vibrancy came the Strategic Initiative for Women in the Horn of Africa, SIHA for short. SIHA was created by women activists from Somaliland, Ethiopia, and Sudan, and they described themselves as an indigenous African women's rights organization with a soul. For a very long time, SIHA was mostly ignored outside of the region because it's a risky region. Attention tends to focus on UN humanitarian support and large international NGOs. But they continued doing the work, working with grassroots women's organizations, building trust and networks, doing trainings, and supporting to put the demands of women on the table of policymakers at all levels. In the last few years, SIHA received more direct core funding and it came at the nick of time. In 2018, if you'll remember, the protests in Sudan began. SIHA was able to support activists engage in mass mobilization, providing emergency support so that they could organize against the targeted and gendered violence against women during the protests, and to ensure that the contribution of women wasn't invisibilized. As you all will remember, the Sudanese people overthrew a 30-year dictatorship and women were at the forefront of that struggle. SIHA as an organization is only a small part of that change, but I tell that story to show how important it is to support feminist groups throughout the ecosystem, how flexible and core support can also help organizations to move swiftly and strategically at important moments of change, and that feminist movements are key drivers of broad social change, including on democratic change. And the example that I'm giving you here isn't a singular example. So if feminist movements are key drivers of social change, they must be well-resourced, right? Well, unfortunately, that's not the case. What we found that AWID has shown that feminist movements are operating on less than a shoestring. Their activism is precarious work, and that most of our movements are sustained by volunteers and autonomous resourcing. And the funding death is even worse for marginalized communities of women. The Black Feminist Fund that I'm also a part of concluded research recently that showed that Black women, girls, and trans organizing, for example, receives as little as 0.01% of foundation funding. But I'm gonna let Zora tell us a bit more about the funding situation. What I'd like to tell us about is some of the systemic and political barriers that feminist organizers and their organizations are facing. There's a concerted attack on feminist agendas and women's rights gains from what we call anti-rights actors. Not only are they states, but also a collusion of actors that are building power and influence in many corners of the world. And these forces are 
targeting women and LGBTIQ people as primary sites to advance their agendas of control and power. What does that look like in reality? Let me give you an example. The World Congress of Families is a US organization. It works to, for policies and laws that discriminate against LGBTIQ people. In late 2019, they held a regional conference in Ghana. Two years later, a law that further criminalizes homosexuality and proposes forced conversion therapy is being pushed through the parliament in Ghana. Thankfully, though, feminists and human rights activists and LGBTIQ activists are putting up firm resistance in the process. But the tactic isn't just about introducing a law, it's also about influencing public opinion and discourse. And so in this period of these public hearings, Ghanaians who are even perceived to be LGBTIQ have experienced exponential increase in violent attacks against them. All over the world, we're seeing that anti-rights actors are using generational and global tactics, that they're providing support to young people, training, using media and technology. And these are tactics that you'll recognize even from what our, Aya was saying, because they're also tactics that feminists use. But one of the stark differences is in the resourcing. When the Global Philanthropy Network compared the resources going to anti-rights organizations and those going to LGBTIQ movements, they found that anti-rights funding was more than triple that of LGBTIQ funding. And of course, the backlash on women's rights and feminist agendas isn't limited to issues of bodily autonomy and sexual and reproductive rights. If the pandemic has shown us anything, it's that decades of structural adjustment of the privatization of public services are attacks on women's rights. The global trade rules and intellectual property, that land grabbing and ecological assault, that occupation and colonialism are all attacks on women's rights because women and gender expansive people are disproportionately impacted by these and because we're at the forefront of the resistance. Given these attacks in many contexts, important feminist work is really holding the line. Nevertheless, feminist movements, as Aya said, are making some of the most meaningful and historic contributions in recent history and putting their lives on the line doing it. Gender, women and gender expansive people are back on the streets of Sudan, organizing neighborhood committees and creating real decentralized participatory democratic processes across the country. Women and gender expansive people change laws on reproductive rights in Argentina, in Ireland, as we'll hear, and in Benin. Indigenous and black women and gender expansive people are really on the front lines of the fight for our planet, not only as part of the resistance, but also as part of the solution, putting forward and showing us the alternatives, the possibilities for a thriving world. So I'd like to close by saying, I was called to answer why supporting feminist movement helps to build gender justice. Said differently, the question is about impact. And I hope today I've given you a clear picture of the impact of feminist movements. Ultimately though, we need to ask ourselves, what would the world be like if feminist movements hadn't made the gains they have? And is that the world we'd like, want to live in? Thank you. Thank you, Akima. You certainly have given us a good picture of the impact of women's mobilization and, and how actually they're really driving progress towards gender justice. Um, once again, the issue of resourcing has come up. I'll, 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 we'll pick up um, with Zara in a minute. But before I go to, to Zora, I want to 
actually come to you, Albert, to, to try and dig a bit deeper into you know, this progress that is happening for women's rights, because obviously that's also the lesson um, from Ireland. So I'd like really you know, to hear from you how social movements are successfully making progress um, in Ireland. You've been central to some of the key wins for the feminist movement you know, for so many years. So um, can you share your reflections on the successes? What has really enabled you know, the success of the feminist movement and the, the LGBT activism in Ireland? Well, first of all, thank you very much, Sarah, for that, and, and also to, to you and ODI and Irish Aid for asking me to be here today. And let me just say that, you know, 35, 40 years ago when um, I was uh, involved in the women's liberation movement and, you know, I'm with Aya on keeping liberation absolutely in there, it would have been unthinkable for a minister of the Irish government to stand up and actually talk about feminism and to commit state funding to achieving feminist goals and aims of equality for women and girls. So, you know, a great deal has changed over my lifetime and I'm very much with uh, Hakima. We do have to think back and say, what would the world be like if these changes hadn't taken place? At the same time, um, as, as all of you have referenced, this is a time, a very volatile time of great instability where women's livelihoods and expectations have really suffered the depredations of, of COVID and where we are under increasing attack from extreme right-wing populism. So what I say is very much done within that kind of context. And I'll be very brief. Uh, we have had really two very big um, uh, changes in Ireland over the past several years. We won the right to marriage equality for lesbian and gay people in 2015 in a referendum and also had excellent transgender legislation introduced that same year. Uh, three years later in 2018, we actually had a prohibition against abortion removed from our constitution, which has led to the introduction of legislation permitting abortion in Ireland on still restricted circumstances, but wider than we had expected. This doesn't mean that all is well, far from it. You know, a feminist work, I think, is, is never done. And I mean, you do feel that you're pushing this rock of Sisyphus up to the top and it can get top and back down again. Nonetheless, these have been really very major changes, which have led to the kind of speech that the excellent Minister Brophy was able to make um, today, and which I think have very significantly changed uh, lives and expectations for women, for LGBTIQ people in Ireland, and so on. Um, and I want to say that, you know, they have been very major and that at present we are mobilising around and for International Women's Day on seeking to combat gender-based violence and particularly violence against women and girls, which of course has come up as one of the major scourges <clears throat> during the pandemic, something that we all absolutely knew. Please forgive my COVID voice. <clears throat> But what I want to do now, <clears throat> in just a few minutes that I have, I thought it might be useful if I just very quickly actually looked at some of the key features of the campaigning that we've been involved in, and specifically the most recent campaign on abortion, because, of course, everywhere, there is nowhere that women's reproductive rights are safe. There is nowhere that women have perfect access. That is 
infinitely worth in many parts of the world, particularly in the global south, but not exclusively. It is particularly difficult for women who are marginalized, discriminated against to experience poverty, experience violence. Everywhere reproductive rights is an absolutely central basis of our lives as women and girls, and it has to be a major priority in this decade ahead. I would just simply say that in Ireland we had been fighting for 35 years to remove a prohibition from our constitution against abortion and following the very sad, really tragic death of a young Indian woman living in Ireland in 2012 who was refused a termination of her pregnancy when she was spontaneously miscarrying, there was a great outpouring of outrage and instantly those of us who had been campaigning for a long time and new campaigners recognised this as the moment to be seized. And I do think that that sense that when there is strong emotion, you, it is absolutely something that can be seized and built upon. When there is anger, when there is outrage, when there is distress, that is the moment to seize, to build uh, positively and constructively for that change because people will come with you. We were able, so our timing was absolutely right. We also set a very clear goal. We wanted to take something out of the Constitution. It wasn't rocket science. It wasn't very complicated. It wasn't a very complex law. We wanted to get rid of the big obstacle. And you could say that there was a yes or no answer to that. Do you want to do it or do you not? And you need that sort of an answer in a referendum campaign because that's how the people are going to vote. So you always have to think of the context in which your campaign is actually happening. We had a long-term strategy and a plan. We didn't think it was going to come dropping out of the sky. Au contraire, it, women's rights and freedoms and liberation have never dropped out of the sky. We've always had to get out there and fight our socks off all the way and then get in there and fight again to keep it there. So we had our plan and we said we're going to do it in five years. And you know, we did. I think that was maybe luck, <laughs> but we did do it within five years. And very, very key, we made a decision from the get-go that this was absolutely going to be a feminist-driven, women-led campaign. And I think that not sacrificing those feminist principles and politics and ways of working was really, really important throughout. And that furthermore, it was going to be, and it was, because that's where it was coming from, grassroots and bottom-up. And of course, you get the best purchase for the long term, with grassroots bottom-up campaigns. And um, it was also very interestingly, largely or exclusively volunteer-led uh, and driven, uh, which, which I think is, is also something that needs to be taken into the equation. I'm not saying the women should always have to, to volunteer, uh, but in fact, that kind of social movement energy uh, is usually volunteer-driven. Uh, what we did that was very important from 2013, really 2012, was to build a coalition, to set out to build a coalition of broad forces. We reckoned that feminists and women's organisations on our own could not win a national referendum, that we had to draw in all of the forces of the left, of the progressive centre-left, uh, all of the kinds of NGOs and organisations who could be seen to have a stake in this issue. We absolutely had to bring that together. And we spent several years building that coalition and learning how we could work together so that when we came to the actual referendum campaign, we did by and large know how to work together.
We had a very clear identity, what we stood for, what we looked like, who we were, that was clear from the get-go. And I think a key factor for us that we started to do research on the kind of ways that we needed, uh, in which we needed to speak with our constituency, with the people of Ireland. What kinds of messages would we put out there? We spent a lot of time, we got professional help, we managed to find the money uh, to do that. And we came up with very, very clear and very, very simple messages around the need for abortion, which is basically, it's a need and it is a healthcare need. And our three messages were care, compassion and change. That was it. And it meant that we were not all the time fighting on some kind of nebulous uh, religious-led moral ground. We were saying this is a material need in women's lives and we're asking you to be compassionate enough to understand to allow that need to be met by our state. We kept our tone not confrontational, it was more conversational. What do you need to know about this? Can we have a conversation about it? We're not here to lecture you, we're not here to tell you what to do. We're here to work through this issue and to have a chat about it with you. And that kind of tone uh, burnt off that notion that all pro-choice activists like me have, have horns uh, coming out of our heads. We maybe have horns, but actually we can also have conversations. There was a massive ground campaign mobilization. I think sometimes with social media, we can momentarily forget that importance of the one-to-one, -one, mano a mano, um, conversation that you have with the voter or the, the, the politician or the whoever it is on the ground. Of course, social media were vastly important. I wouldn't dream from my great height of 75 years of age to, to know anything really about social media, except that you have to manage it. You have to try and get control of it. You have to actually keep those messages going out there to stop. And you have to be able to take action against the trolling, which of course is another day's work and something that absolutely needs to be addressed. Social media was hugely important for us in raising funding for the campaign, which came very significantly through online one-by-one -one, uh, donations. And the last point I'm going to make is that really what moved the people of Ireland to vote in favour of legislating for women to have abortions in Ireland, which had never been heard of, hundreds and thousands of women going over to UK, the UK all the time, were the stories that women so generously and bravely and valiantly told about their own experiences of having to make those journeys and how deeply stressful, distressing and sad those journeys were. And that appeal to emotion is so important in all of the campaigning uh, that we do. So, you know, what I would say overall is that really that though that campaign, as the marriage equality campaign before it, was really driven by passion, by determination, by really thinking through the strategy, and above all, I think, by a sense of unity and solidarity. And it is very much that sense of solidarity that we feel with um, women and girls and other people who can become pregnant throughout the world and in relation to reproductive rights generally and so many other issues that is absolutely key for us at the moment to seek to build and to strengthen those connections uh, between ourselves i hope i've kept within my five minutes thank you oh but that was really incredible i, I think he really gives us a, a nice tangible sense of you know what he means when we say that 
feminist movements are building gender justice. Um, so we've clearly heard from you, from Aya, from Hakima, that social movements are having an impact. Uh, but we've also heard particularly from uh, Aya and Hakima that it remains a struggle to really achieve transformation of scale without unlocking, you know, without releasing uh, further resources that can unlock the full potential of activists. Um, and Zara, I want to come to you um, for that, because this is really at the center of the work that you do at Mama Cash. Um, and, and so can you really share from the work that you do with the, um, uh, social movements, what is from their perspective that is really needed in the current context? Yeah, sure, thanks. Thanks first also to ODI and to Irishade for uh, creating this platform for us to be having this conversation today. It's it's really welcome and necessary. Um, and it's um, great to be able to have this as a conversation, as a dialogue, um, because it's gonna, it's gonna take all of us to get involved in this. So as we've been hearing, and indeed, Sarah, you just said, yeah, feminist movements do make a huge difference. They make a huge difference to advancing gender equality, women's rights, uh, gender justice. They also make a huge difference to the nature of the world. Um, and I think Hakima in particular was telling us a little bit about the links to other important issues like the climate, like peace, like democracy, and so on. The gains feminist movements have made till now are, are huge. They're impressive. Um, I think sometimes we perhaps take it for granted. It's um, a bit normal to see some things. Now we forget the distance we've come. And it was really helpful to hear from Alvi talk about how it would have been unheard of uh, to have a minister from the Irish government speak the way that, that the minister spoke today, just a little time ago. And because feminist movements do make such a huge difference and have such a huge impact, you would think that they're extremely well-resourced. I mean, the types of things that feminist movements are achieving, you would think they're well-resourced. Um, and indeed, um, some uh, one study showed that about 40% of ODA goes to um, gender equality and women's empowerment, which sounds pretty good, right? 40, 40%, not bad. Yet actually 99% of this gender-focused aid actually reaches women's actually doesn't reach the one actor that would make the difference, which is women's rights organizations. So 99% of the aid that's focused on gender equality and women's rights is going to every other actor than the one that we've just said makes the biggest difference to the agenda that's being funded. What's happening? I think we can agree then that that's less effective than we would like. And we spend at Mama Cash quite a lot of time talking to donors and to funders about uh, their intentions and then their practice and what's the gap between their their objectives and then what's actually happening for them. And one important thing that we're discovering is that there is a growing consensus about the importance of, of women's rights and that funding for this really does matter. What we don't have um, consensus yet on is acknowledgement of this evidence that Hakima talked about. This evidence that shows that autonomous feminist movements are the single most important variable to whether there will be advancement on gender justice and women's rights, more important than every other variable that was examined in this particular study and in other studies. So Mama Cash also produced a literature review looking at several studies, um, looking at all the quantitative ones that were available and some of the qualitative ones that were available to check. Is, is this a common theme? And it turns out it is. Women's autonomous feminist movements and women's rights movements 
have a significant impact every time there's a change on women's rights. So there's something going on between what we know to be working and then what funders are able to do. And I think part of the reason is the thing that's actually making the difference is that it's not just um, NGOs working on women's rights. It's really about organizations that are feminist, organizations that are working in movement, and organizations that are autonomous and movements that are autonomous. And that's, I think, where it starts to get a little bit tricky for people. And I would argue it need not. So if we just break it down and we look at what supports autonomous feminist movements to exist and to persist, which is what we need them to do, there are several things that we can do as funders um, that would support this. In terms of helping movements stay autonomous, we can provide core, what we call core flexible funding. So this is unrestricted funding that allows um, organizations and movement actors to make the choices they need when they need to make them and to not be directive as funders, to trust that movements actually can make the decisions at the time for what needs to happen. And if we can sustain that funding over time so we can provide longer term funding, um, it allows those movements to actually plan ahead and to strategize and not to be spending all their time fundraising. If we're serious about funding feminist movements and feminist organizations, then it really does matter which organizations we're choosing to fund. What happens with this 99% of gender-focused gender aid funding is that it's going to organizations that aren't necessarily feminist. They may not even be organizations that are led by women. And this does make a difference. So it matters a lot that other organizations also work on women's rights and also pursue feminist agendas. But it doesn't replace the need for feminist organizations and organizations led by women. They make the difference. And feminism is about transforming power relations. Um, and that's, that's a big deal. That's something to think about. And that is more than legal and policy changes. So Aya spoke about this right at the, at the beginning of her talk, that we do, of course, need policy and legal changes. But we also need what she called community building and what others would call also social norm change. That kind of work is complex, does take time, and does need a particular kind of funding that isn't about tracking how many legal changes there are. It's about sometimes, for example, just holding the line. It can be about preventing backlash. And that looks very different when you're funding that way than when you're trying to find um, a win that's important, like obvious wins that she's describing, but that then needs further policy and practice to work, to know that it's being implemented and to help that stick over time so that we don't have uh, what we're seeing now is some of the backlash and the regression because the legal win came before the social norm change happened. And finally, if we're really serious about funding movements, we have to get beyond the idea of NGOs. NGOs are extremely important. Um, let's be clear about that. They help, they help groups of people build power and to organize. But movements are about more than NGOs, and they are about collective action, different actors coming together to work jointly, collectively in alliance to achieve things. And right now, we have a lot of funding models that are systematically requiring us to compete with each other. We're actually asking women's rights organizations to compete with each other for funding in order to be able to secure funding that would help them work together. 
you can see how that makes not a lot of sense. So if we're seriously interested in strengthening feminist movements, we have to start funding in a way that allows movement actors to cooperate and for actors that are not just NGOs to be able to access some of this funding. This can all be done. It's true that not all donors have the flexibility to do all of these things in all the ways that it could be done, but there are different mechanisms that they can use that can help them, and donors can also work together to achieve these aims. So, for example, there are organizations that exist to bridge between um, donors that have more restrictive possibilities and feminist movements. And one such actor is what's called a women's fund. Mama Cash is an example of a women's fund. But in reality, there are many kinds of women's funds in the world. They operate nationally, they operate regionally, um, some are issue-based and some are global. And some, for example, leading from the South, are collections of women's funds that have got together to work um, to cover yeah, different topic areas or different regions. So Leading for them from the South is a collection of four women's funds that are based in the Global South um, that are able to reach feminist movements at a very grassroots level, but can receive millions in government funding, bilateral aid. So that's a really good example of how you can use a mechanism that um, allows you to reach the grassroots, but still work through, a ch through an organization that you feel yeah, you can work with in terms of your own restrictive possibilities. Because we hear that a lot from donors. They'd like to be funding autonomous feminist movements, but they've got their particular bureaucratic restrictions that prevent it. So there are, there are other options. One thing I would really um, want us to remember is that in our enthusiasm for funding um, feminist movements and, and wanting to do more on this, we might take the approach that um, showing up in any way is a good is a good idea. And I would really caution caution us about that. So it matters hugely that there's this growing consensus that women's rights matter and that feminist movements matter. And it matters a lot that funders and donors show up and show up at this at the scale that's needed to actually address the problems that we're talking about. Um, but it also matters how we show up. So channeling a whole bunch of resources into a direction that actually undermines the work of feminist movements and women's rights organizations can do more harm than good. It can cause harm in and of itself, and it can also distract and detract from the work um, and the priorities that women's movements are busy with. And that means we're, they're ineffectual and also we're ineffectual with our funding. A little funding can also go a long way. And so maybe one thing I can end on is that the kind of funding we're talking about as necessary needs to be several things. It needs to be adequate, so it needs to be at the levels that we need. It needs to be accessible to the actual organizations and movements that we're trying to support. Um, so, you know, the reason 99% isn't getting to the women's rights organizations is because it's not accessible. And it also needs to be appropriate, so it actually needs to further the agendas that women's rights organizations are working on rather than detracting them or forcing them into, into other things. But also, um, we need different kinds of funding. So whatever your particular um, area is, whatever your portfolio is, you can achieve something with having some percentage of your funding going towards feminist movements and women's rights organizations. We also see a situation where um, 
sometimes donors think, oh, the, the, the women's rights funding is supposed to come from the gender pot. Um, don't, don't knock on our door, we, do, we deal with climate or we deal with democracy or we deal with the other human rights issues. If you want the women's rights money, you need to go to the gender pot. That gender pot is usually the smallest pot in the whole ministry, department, donor agency, foundation, whatever it is, it's usually the smallest pot. And that pot is vital. We definitely need standalone funding that's directly about gender, that's totally focused on women's rights. But we also need a mainstreamed approach. We need both standalone and mainstream. So we need those other pots of money to also be allocating funding to gender equality, to gender justice, to feminist movements. And so if you are a funder listening right now, if you are a donor and you are in the non-gender pot, start to think about what percentage could you start to allocate that will for sure go to women's rights organizations or feminist movements. I know that you are contributing to your colleague working in the in the gender pot and helping her achieve her aims, usually her, can be someone else, um, but you also can be contributing to supporting the feminist movements that will be making the change also on your agenda. I'll stop there because I know we're running with time uh, and hope that we can continue the dialogue. Thanks. Sorry, I'm muted. I was saying I could have just carried on listening to you because your remarks were so incredibly you know, um, pointed and, and so useful for so many of the challenges that we know come with the resourcing feminist movements. And as you very well said, the issue is not just about the level of funding, it's also the modalities. Um, I know that we have a lot of donors listening in, both from foundations and bilaterals. I'm really hoping that they can engage in the discussion because um, I, I think it will only come you know, from reflecting on how we really support the movements rather than particular organizations, as very well said, to really um, enable that collaboration rather than you know, generating competition that would be you know, critical and how we go beyond the style of funding. You said that so well. Um, so let's move to discussing this with the audience. Um, please start sending your questions, you know, engage in the discussion. Um, the ODI team will, is keeping an eye on the Q&A box and, the, and will send them my way. But before I come to your question, I just want to, to really check if you were paying attention to what Zora was saying and do a very quick poll, um, which should be visible in the slider box on your screen right now. And the question in the poll is really, what percentage of international gender equality funding currently reaches grassroots women's rights or feminist organizations? Is it less than 1%? Is it 1.5%, 7%, 15.2% or 24%? Um, just answer now by choosing an option on the screen. Um, and while we wait, again, you know, please you know, do put the question in the Q&A, not in the chat box, please, in the Q&A, but use the chat box perhaps to share some of your, uh, um, your thoughts particularly from our donor colleagues, you know, your thoughts on what may be stopping you from funding more of this work and in the way that Zora was, uh, um, you know, underlining. Or, you know, if you are um, a feminist voice, we'd like to hear from you or, you know, what else you think we need to consider to truly expand the role of uh, feminist activism in building transformative um, change. But before I bring the panel back in for the Q&A, let's see if we've got an answer to the poll. Um, is the poll closed? I don't see the answer yet. 
Um, no, no answers yet. So I'll uh, um, I'll just uh, go to the first question that's come from the audience. Um, are there any organizations, resources, websites that show examples of women's social movements in action around the world? Does anyone know the answer from the panelists? I think that's a really interesting question because I was thinking, as I'm sure Hakima and Zora have been as well, and I can't think of any website that brings them all together, but it's certainly a fantastic idea. And somebody out there is going to start it. So I'm looking at you, Hakima. <laughs> I don't know. But it's a great idea, case studies in a way. And it would get us all, um, you know, cross involved in sort of cross conversations. We actually do support one such platform at ODI, which is the Align platform that really does, you know, bring together the, okay. the learning and the lessons from um, feminist mm -hmm. groups from all over the world. And we have a huge amount of resources from all the groups that are part of the platform. And please keep contributing to it so we can continue to expand it. Um, I think um, um, the team will put a link in the chat so that people you know, who are not familiar with the line can go and check um, sort of the work that the platform does. Um, but I've got another question for you. So what do you think needs to happen to shift the dial on resourcing feminist activists, especially overcoming the idea that is considered too political for donors? Um, we've heard from Zora a lot about this. I don't know if Akima or Abba, you want to comment on that as well. And then of course, Zora, you can add as well. I think it's an interesting question because when when we ask say it's too political, I guess what Zora was saying is centralized that feminist activism and movements are about shifting power. But often we're we're raising that in a context where we're not recognizing where actually a lot of other actors are engaged in political work, but it's about either shifting power to the other side or about maintaining the status quo, which is a, um, a condition of power in itself. And so what feminist movements are doing is trying to build a better world. And, and in a lot of ways, that means indeed empowering people to um, be able to, to create that world. Um, and I, I'd love to hear what Alba and Zora have to say and how we kind of convince people that not to be afraid of political shift, not to be afraid of some of the ways in which feminists are trying to create change. And what you were saying earlier about the campaign in Ireland, um, really opening up conversation, I think is, is, is really interesting in that way. Okay, sorry. Um, if, if I just come in there briefly, I was very struck by, uh, I think you're right, Hakima, but I was struck by something Zora was saying. Um, one of your points was that there has to be funding, or the way I was thinking, to sustain whatever has been achieved, and that it's a kind of 
after you win sort of um, funding, really, isn't it? Because a victory is never really a victory. It's a step on the road. Um, and I think that it's in that moment after the victory that you actually need that funding support so that you can go on um, with the connections that you need with legislators, with policymakers, with um, other services and so on, so that you can keep on going in and out and showing what the difference that a change is making and how they can actually implement this. So there is that bridging moment that absolutely has to, to, to happen. And that, of course, is very difficult because certainly in my experience after a campaign and after a coalition, everybody tends to not go back home, but they go back into their organisations or their groups and they say normal hostilities can now resume because actually it's really difficult to do coalition. So uh, trying, we, we've been trying to do that with abortion. So we have an abortion working group which brings people together and which keeps knocking on ministerial and other doors, but it isn't funded. And it's precisely the kind of work that does actually need some support. But who do you apply to? Uh, apart perhaps, I mean, Mama Cash is, is, is an exception in this regard. Uh, but it is, it is a really, really important question, I think. Thanks. The questions are really flocking in. But before I come to the questions, I'll take two or three in, in sort of in batches so that then you know our panelists can engage um, sort of addressing them all together. Let me just give you the answer to the to the poll. We've got the results. You are very good listeners because it is less than one percent. I mean, Zora talked about you know ninety nine percent you know not going to the right people, but yes, the answer was less than one percent of the money is going you know to feminist uh, activism, and that is very well um, discussed in the report that Avid has put out. You know, where is the money for feminist organizing? I really do encourage you to look at that report. It's incredibly powerful. Um, and actually, Align has also newly launched a briefing on you know, global feminist experiences of mobilizing for norm change, which covers you know, the same issues that have been both posted in the, in the chat now. But let me uh, put your questions to the panel. So, um, first of all, is, is there any outstanding or emerging practice that makes funding more accessible to organizations, both formal and informal, who has weak or no, no digital access? Um, a second question is, what advice would you give to international NGOs that work on gender equality and want to bolster feminist movements without taking their space, other than direct funding? Um, and then third, uh, um, as part of a grant facility, how can you contribute to an organization or a movement sustainability if you're limited to project-based funding? A lot of questions about funding, but also, you know, how you reach out to organizations with uh, um, little uh, digital access. Zora, shall I come to you first to address uh, any of the questions or all? And then I'll, I'll bring in uh, Hakim and Ab. Sure, thanks. Um, so I'm also going to cheat and uh, start and answer a bit of the, the last one about the idea that it's it's too political. Yeah. What are we talking about? Um, gender equality is uh, one of the sustainable development goals. That is a political consensus. So it's political in that a bunch of governments got together, formed a political consensus, made a political document and said gender equality is important to us. And for example, we will eradicate violence against women and girls by 2030. Yeah, that's a political agreement. If we've already agreed the what, which is gender equality and an end to violence against women and girls, then the next conversation isn't to keep debating what, it's about to start talking about how. 
And the how is the evidence that we've just talked about. We've oh, yeah. seen that the evidence shows that the way to actually get gender equality and eliminate violence against women and girls is to support autonomous feminist movements. So <laughs> what's the debate about? The next question then is, and how do we support them then? Not whether we support them or what are we trying to do? Those two questions have already been answered. The question now is how do we actually do this well? Mm -hmm. Which then leads us to some of these very specific questions. So thanks, thanks for asking concrete questions are great. Um, so how do you get funding to formal and informal organizations that may, yeah, may not have great access to um, the internet? Um, so women's funds do, do fund formal and informal organizations. So Mama Cash, for example, can fund informal organizations, as can other women's funds around the world, and as can other organizations. There are other kinds of community foundations and so on that do this work. Um, and especially those that are actually located in in the context that we're fund they're funding in and we're funding in. So, for example, in the Netherlands, we have much better access to activists in the Netherlands and can fund them differently, um, up to being very informal. And so too can other community foundations, women's funds, and so on in their contacts. Um, women's funds are also usually created by feminist activists. Um, so the people actually running the organizations came from the same movements that they're then looking to support. They know how to reach those people and those people already reach them. They show up together on the on the march on the Saturday and then they're they're talking the following week about, you know, what are they going to do next? So it's not as distant as, as it might seem. Um, there was another qu very specific question, okay, about a grant facility. Uh -huh. How can you use project based funding to contribute to uh, to overall sustainability? Um, good question. And I think asking the question helps you start to get somewhere with it, right? So how much flexibility do you have in that project funding? Does it have to be down to each line item about you will spend only maximum this much on overhead? Or can it be project funding has to be on this topic, for instance? Um, in which case they can then use it flexibly as long as it's st still covering that topic. So it really depends on what kind of project funding you're talking about. One thing I would encourage people to get much more creative about is um, supporting what we would call resilience or holistic security or integrated security and all these things that actually contribute to sustainability of feminist organizations. And that is really underestimated. Um, the level of resistance that folks are facing right now is extremely high. It's very dangerous. I mean, we're talking about it here and kind of celebrating the wins of feminist activists and feminist movements. It is very dangerous yes. in many, many contexts to call yourself an activist and to do feminist activism. Yes. And so if you want an organization to stay resilient, if you want a movement to be able to sustain its work, you have to protect the activists that are carrying out this work. So all the work that you can do to support that organization or that movement actor or whatever it is around their collective care efforts, which includes allowing them to network with other organizations to provide this protection to each other um, is really vital. And you can make project funding that's just about that, for example. And that's a direct contribution to resilience and sustainability of movements, but in a pro project package. Brilliant. Zora, um, Hakim and Alba, before I come to you, I'll add the two last questions I'm going to take from the audience. I'm afraid we're running out of time. So uh, there's a question about what about supporting feminist organizing in a different way, not only funding, say, capacity development. Now, I have to come clean. I am allergic to the notion of capacity building and capacity <laughs> development, but I put that to you. 
Um, and then finally, women in communities do not have three audited statements which stand in the way of accessing funds, even from feminist donors. What can we do about this? And that's perhaps also a question for the donors who are listening to reflect um, upon. But um, Hakima and, and then Alvin, then we really need to wrap up. I think a lot of the questions are speaking to some of the challenges in reaching grassroots feminist movements in, in different parts of the world. And maybe what I can offer is a helpful frame. I wonder if thinking about however you're positioned in that ecosystem kind of way. So what parts of the ecosystem are you able to support or provide you know, different kinds of support, not just financial, but others too. And how is that helping the overall movement? And I'm saying that because I think in some instances, and some of these questions point to, there's a lot of room for creativity. And I think funders tend to almost restrict themselves sometimes without necessarily, without it being necessary. So what is the room for creativity? How can you support different parts of the ecosystem that might then reach the parts that you're looking for. Um, Zora mentioned women's funds. There's also ways in which um, feminist movements are coming together in consortium that you can then support the whole consortium or networks or membership organizations. So there's lots of different ways. You know, Alva talked in Ireland about the campaign and that brought together lots of movement actors from different spaces. So if it's, for instance, project-based support that you have, how can you support a campaign like that that's maybe time-bound and, and very specific but still enables the movement to grow and to, and to really come together? Um, there was a question about INGOs and what they can do beyond direct funding of feminist movements. I did have a question about why beyond because I think that, that they might also consider doing that. But um, I think... I think another thing that INGOs can do is be really cognizant about how they can support creating an enabling environment for feminist movements. So use their cloud and their access to for feminist movements to have more political access, to have more um, of a safe environment. Zora mentioned all of the risks that people are under. Um, provide visibility, amplify the work of feminist movements where it's safe to do so. Um, but also maybe considering shifting power in creative ways. So again, it tends the model tends to be the INGO gets the money and then you know supports local feminist organizations with that money, and maybe the project ends and then they disappear. Are there ways that actually that money, the decision-making power over how that money gets spent is actually with the local feminist movement? Um, are there models that mean that the money enables feminist movements to then later access more funding? A lot of funders talk about absorptive capacity as an issue. And in many ways, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't give feminist movements money, then they'd never have the absorptive capacity yes. Yes. to take up that money. Yes. So what are you doing to ensure that anything that you do is an intervention in that and enables feminist movements to hold yes. the power, to hold the resources, and to do the work that they need to do in their context. Yes. Absolutely. So well put, Akiva Alba. 
Well, that, that is indeed very, very well put. I'm just going to comment really briefly, Sarah. Uh, I'm so struck by Zora talking about, you know, the danger that there is for feminist activists and other activists indeed in so many parts of the world, really, really everywhere, and particularly at the present time. And, you know, I've always thought you, you do have to be really brave to be an activist. You have to be really very brave to be a feminist activist. And I think how much more incredibly brave do you have to be in parts of the world that don't have the privileges and protections that somebody like me has in Ireland? And, you know, I just fall down actually in admiration. But it also makes the point that those of us who live in very privileged spaces, such as I do in Europe, that there is a huge responsibility for us to keep pushing the decision makers, those who have the purse strings, those who have the levers of power, and to keep reminding them of the point that Zora made, which is that all of the decisions, all of the issues we're talking about have already been put and agreed on international agendas. Therefore, we have to keep on making that noise all the time. Um, and I'm very conscious of that at the moment, that men are not stepping up on the issue of violence against women, for example. And it is time for them to step up. It is their problem, not women's problem. They're the ones who are causing the problem. They have to resolve it. So I think that we have to be a lot louder and firmer in making, or those of us who can, in making those points. And the final two issues, I would say, yes, of course, of course, it's always political. I was so heartened by the UN Women's Report, which is called a feminist plan for sustainability and social justice. And they debated as to whether or not to put in the word feminist. And they came out on the right side and they said yes. And uh, that is that, that, that strikes a blow for feminists all over the world, I think. And thirdly, projects you know, let's try and keep the issues connected as well. Everything that we've been talking about, it's all connected. It is all about oppressing women, preventing us, subjugating us, subordinating us. So in all of whatever we do, we're rising up against that and helping one another. And I absolutely share your problem with capacity building, Sarah. My answer to that is get out there and do something. You will build your so-called capacity and then we'll think about funding. So I would say to anybody, forget capacity building, get an action, go out and change something. And hopefully you will get support then in the future. Thank you so much. I wish we could carry on, but unfortunately, we really are out of time. But before I close formally, in less than 30 seconds, what would you add to Aya's call to action? Hakima. Um, less than 30 seconds. Join feminist movements, believe and trust feminist activists, respect and support the leadership of feminist movements, and be in it for the long haul. Excellent. Alba. Rock on feminism and feminists. That's all I can say. We are changing the world. We have changed so much. We have to keep on doing it because the lives and the well-being and the flourishing of so many depend upon it. Fantastic. Zora. Ooh, you're on mute. Start again. There's nothing inevitable about the, the life as we're living it now so we can entirely change it and we can wake up every day and to uh, make a difference on that and everyone can 
in their seat from their seat make a difference so just choose how you want to participate and do it thank you so much hakima alba zora and of course um aya what a wonderful wonderful conversation but it's not just the pleasure of the conversation is the power behind the conversation to really try and make sure that we can continue to push for change um we will continue the conversation we're moving to zoom we really wanted to make sure that we could have a really interactive conversation with everyone that is online it's going to be a struggle because there are like more than a thousand people online but we'll try our best and in any case you know it'll be a platform that we, it will really um help have a more participatory session so um i'd really like to invite everyone to join the interactive dialogue so that we can continue the conversation on Zoom. The link has been posted now um, in the chat. It will also be on the event webpage just before 1 p.m. We have another stellar lineup of civil society and uh, high-level speakers that will focus on two particular sessions on what are the barriers the feminist organizers face and how can social movements overcome them. And the other one is, again, on funding and how, you know, what new funding or different funding uh, and support models um, are needed from you know, international donors to sustain effective grassroots activists. So we're pretty much carrying on the conversation. I hope our, uh, our wonderful panelists will be able to join that conversation too. Uh, we'll be over there in just over um, five minutes. We'll start at 1 p.m. sharp, but um, for now, this public event will be it's been recorded so it will be available online in two or three days on our website and we'll promote it you know via twitter and our youtube and, and Nodia Lab event podcast but i really really want to thank zora akima alba aya you've been incredible um i want to Thank all of you for joining ODI and really huge thanks again to Irish Aid for co-hosting the event with us today. I hope to see all of you at a future ODI's event, but in the meantime, let's keep up the momentum for feminist change. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.